We're going to be reading Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Would you rise out of reverence for the reading of God's word? Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to Caiaphas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. There's perhaps no more ominous word in our modern language than apocalypse or apocalyptic. But what is an apocalypse? In asking this question, I imagine that we would get a lot of different answers around this room, even in this congregation. With Pastor Pastor Joel's sermons on the Olivet Discourse and our discussion of how dispensationalism understands Jesus' teaching, maybe a lot of our minds would go to uh, the end times when we're talking about apocalypse. Uh, Dispensationalists are committed to what's called a futuristic understanding of the Olivet Discourse and also the book of Revelation, which in Greek is called the Apocalypse of John. That's just how we translate the word. Dispensationalists then associate the word with the future, with the end times. Usually associated with this futuristic understanding of apocalypse is an idea of God's judgment and social collapse and destruction. This futuristic understanding of apocalypse has slipped into popular culture. We have genres of literature and film which draw on this understanding of apocalypse. So we talk about post-apocalyptic films or literature. In these things, something great disaster has come across, has come into the world, has come on mankind, has brought death and destruction, and it's about the survivors who, well, are trying to survive in this world. There is some truth to this futuristic understanding of the word apocalypse, which has slipped into our culture. In the Bible, the word apocalypsis, or apocalypse, which is often translated as revelation, 
does have an eschatological element to it, an end times or a God's intervening in the world to it. Apocalyptic literature developed in and from the Old Testament, beginning especially with the latter half of Isaiah, verses 40, or chapter 40 through chapter 66, but also in parts of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. The New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham helpfully notes that at the central core of apocalyptic belief is a focus on the transcendent eschatology of divine intervention and cosmic transformation. In other words, the prophets looked forward to a time when God would intervene in history to bring salvation and transformation. But the idea of apocalypse was not merely concerned with the future, but very importantly, it gave you a perspective, a heavenly perspective on what is happening in the here and now, and it gave you a way to understand things from God's true perspective of what's happening. You can think of Daniel and the four beasts and how it's showing that the Lord is ultimately going to send his son to reign. But with the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, God has definitively intervened in history, bringing deliverance and transformation to his people. So when Paul says in verse 12 that the gospel he received came not from or through man, but through a revelation or apocalypse, that's the word that he uses there, of Jesus Christ, he is saying and drawing on this apocalyptic tradition of the prophets, and he's saying that its fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been revealed in these last days. Okay, the reason why I open and focus on this theme of apocalypse, emphasizing it, of an eschatological revelation and divine intervention, is because it's a necessary thing for us to understand the book of Galatians as a whole and of our passage today. God's apocalyptic revelation, and I use kind of that redundant term because we don't really have a verb form of apocalypse in our language like the Greeks did, so I'll say God's apocalyptic revelation an eschatological intervention in and through Jesus Christ is the means by which we understand what Paul's going to talk about, what we describe as the law and gospel distinction, the breakdown of barriers between Jews and Gentiles, and the spirit-driven life and manner of life walking in the spirit in this present evil age. All of these things we need to understand the apocalyptic language that Paul uses and the tradition that he builds on. What we'll see today is that God has definitively intervened and revealed himself through the person and work of his Son, as proclaimed in his gospel, and that therefore this is the only true gospel that brings salvation and transformation to us. To come to this conclusion, I want us to consider three angles under three subpoints uh, to get at this. First, we're going to look at apocalyptic guilt, verses 11 through 14. Second, we'll look at apocalyptic grace, verses 15 through 20. And lastly, we'll look at apocalyptic gratitude. And let me just say up front and make it clear that when I say apocalyptic guilt, grace, and gratitude, I'm referring to the guilt, grace, and gratitude which comes to human beings as they encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And they understand the guilt of their sin in light of what he had to suffer And they understand the grace of God and what he does for us in Christ and the gratitude that we live 
in light of everything Christ has done for us. That's what I mean when I'm talking about apocalyptic guilt, grace, and gratitude. And I just wanted to put that up front, but we'll flesh it out more as we go. So that's our outline, apocalyptic guilt, grace, and gratitude. Let's look at the first point, apocalyptic guilt. In the first ten verses, Paul has expounded on God's gospel of free grace, which he has preached to the Galatians, which they have received, and which Paul says that they are now turning from it to another gospel, which in fact is no gospel at all, but is bad news. There are false teachers in Galatia who are questioning Paul's apostleship and challenging his teaching. Paul has explained already that his apostleship is not from or through man, but is the direct appointment by God through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That was the first ten verses, defending his apostleship. Here now, Paul begins to explain the source of his gospel message and to further explain how he was appointed to the task of proclaiming it. Thus he states in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Recall that in verse 10, we see that Paul was being accused of being a people pleaser. That this guy, these false teachers were saying about him, watered down the gospel. He actually compromised it because he gave you a dumbed down version of it. And in truth, Paul says you just needed Christ, but you need to do more. You need circumcision. And you need to be under the law and obedient to it. In other words, these teachers were saying that Paul left out the bit that you need something else, something on top of Christ. In doing this, these false teachers were saying that Paul was a second-class apostle, that he got his doctrine from man. It's not the pure teaching of the gospel. This is why Paul says that the gospel that was preached by me It's not man's gospel. He's emphatic on this. And he goes on further in verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice those two negations which Paul asserts. He neither received the gospel from man, nor was he taught it by man. In other words, Paul did not learn the gospel He did not learn about its truths in the same way that the rest of us learn about it, or even the same way that people like Aquila and Apollos learned about it, through the teaching of other people. Paul is saying that he received it directly from God. So with these two negations, he also gives a positive affirmation. He neither received the gospel through man, nor was he taught it by man, but dia apocalypsios isu Christu, through an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is the first time that he uses this important word in this letter. And now, in light of that, we can talk about that theme, apocalyptic guilt. For it is through the apocalypse or revelation of Jesus Christ that Paul came to understand the true level of his guilt. Look at verses 13 through 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In these verses, Paul gives two key pieces of biographic information which serve as evidence of his understanding 
of the law and of how far he is from being a people pleaser. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he was the arch persecutor of the church. Paul essentially says, if you want to talk about the law, let's talk about the law. Ask around about me in Jerusalem. Go in Damascus. My reputation precedes me. So enthusiastic was I for this law and for the traditions of our Father that I persecuted the church of God. And notice that singular use of church of God and its connection. The church of God. It's his ecclesia. It's his assembly. Because he's going to talk in a bit of a different way later. Now these traditions of the fathers that could just be referring to the Mosaic law and how it's been received. Or it might be more specifically referring to the oral traditions of the Pharisees that we talk about when we, Jesus encounters uh, the Pharisees in his ministry. But Paul says, so extremely zealous was he for the law and the traditions of his fathers that he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I don't like that translation of the ESV there. I think it softens what Paul has to say. A better rendering would be something like, I persecuted the church of God excessively and was destroying it. Paul's point is not that he merely tried to destroy the church. His point that he was actively destroying the church of God and that something radical happened to stop that trajectory. Here it's good to reflect on Paul and his life and what it can teach us about religious practice before we get into that, what was that radical change which came more fully. Here it is good to reflect and think How do we understand Paul and his story, and how do we read it? I think sometimes we unhelpfully read our own story into Paul's story, or sometimes we read uh, Paul's former life in Judaism through the lens of someone like Martin Luther and his former life in Roman Catholicism. In doing this, we get what I would argue is a somewhat mistaken view of Paul as being somebody with a tortured conscience, uh, with a guilty conscience. But when we read Paul's letters and we read the narrative of Acts, that does not seem to be the case. Here Paul talks about how he was greatly advancing among the ranks of the religious leaders of his day. Out of conviction, he persecuted the church with a clear conscience. We see this in Acts 26 where Paul testifies to Agrippa. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many, many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Here, remember those words of the Lord Jesus Christ in his farewell discourse. In John 16, he told them, They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. Do you remember Paul's description of his former life in Philippians 3? He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for boast, and he's dealing with Judaizers who thought they had a reason to boast, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's describing how he was in his former manner of life. And as he lived in that former manner, he would have felt pretty good about himself, pretty prideful. He could boast in his obedience to Torah. He could boast in his zeal for the Lord. And in talking about being righteous under the law, being blameless, Paul even says, Paul's not saying that he was sinless before. But he is saying that he kept all the externals of the law. If he sinned, the law had built in remedies for, for it. They had the sacrificial system. Based on the evidence we have here, it seems that Paul was a zealous Jew who lived with a clear conscience and was assured of his right standing with God. In other words, he was a good person. But what happened to change his perspective on that former life? Well, he goes on to say in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus said that they would kill his followers and think it a service to God because they do not know me or the Father. And Paul says that the great change that came in his life is when he came to know Jesus Christ. He had an apocalyptic revelation of Christ and it revealed to him the rubbish, the sewage of all those former things that he boasted in. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus asked him on the road to Damascus, which revealed to Paul that he was the chief of sinners and in need of a great Savior. I have to feel that that was an apocalyptic revelation to Paul, who thought he was giving his service to God in killing those who belong to God's church. And then he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus, and he realizes that he has guilt and that he is a persecutor of Jesus Christ, who is his Lord. I would suggest that rather than reading Paul through the lens of our own biography, we would do much better if we would read our life through the lens of Paul's biography. All of us and all the people around us in our culture have religious practices, even the atheists, which ease consciences. Think of the non-religious moral person who doesn't go to church and doesn't even know if there is a God or heaven, but if there is, he or she will surely be on God's side because after all, I'm a good person, right? Think of all the other religious systems such as Islam, Judaism, Roman Catholicism. All of these have practices, or we might better say mechanisms, to ease and soothe the conscience, or at least numb it. As sinners, though, all of us are capable of fooling ourselves into thinking that our sins are not that bad, and that our works, our good works, surely outweigh the bad. What we all need to dissuade us from this false notion is an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ to reveal the greatness of our sin, the greatness of our guilt, which we can only see in light of the greatness of our Savior who suffered for us the wrath of God. That is the revelation of our guilt which the gospel brings. 
But when we see the revelation of our guilt, our great sin before the Lord, at the same time in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the revelation of grace, which brings us to our next point. We've just looked at apocalyptic guilt. Now let's look at apocalyptic grace. In the apocalyptic revelation of Christ, there is a revelation of our sin and misery, most assuredly, yes. But there is also a revelation of God's abundant grace in His Son. Look at verses 15 through 16, where Paul says, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Before saying anything else, don't pass over those words lightly. Paul says that God called me by his grace. Here he's talking about his calling to be an apostle specifically, but this language is the language of Paul's theology of grace, more generally speaking. God's grace is incongruous. It's undeserved. Neither Paul or we do anything to deserve it. Rather, it comes from his sovereign good pleasure alone. These verses then give us a a snapshot into Paul's theology of grace, which he's going to flesh out through the the rest of these chapters in Galatians. But that's the main point that he wants to see you. God's grace is super abundant, and God's grace is incongruous. It comes to sinners. It comes to those who are persecutors of his church. It comes to those who have broken his law. But moreover, Paul is drawing on and aligning with a prophetic text like Isaiah 49.1, which he quotes, which says of the servant of the Lord, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Verse 5 of that same chapter of Isaiah goes on to say, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And using these words, Paul is identifying his appointment to be an apostle with the call of the messianic servant of the Lord. That's how close his ministry is aligned with the ministry of the risen Messiah. Paul also echoes the words to Jeremiah when he was called to be a prophet in Jeremiah 1.5. He says, Before I was formed in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. In Jeremiah's context, largely his message to the nations is going to be one of judgment. But in our text, we're seeing the appointment of the apostle to the Gentiles. There's going to be blessing to them. In drawing on these prophetic passages, Paul is aligning himself in continuity with the prophetic tradition. And he's also associating himself and his ministry with the eschatological ministry and mission of the Lord's servant, the Messiah. Before Paul was born, the Lord had sovereignly appointed him, Paul, to be the apostle to the Gentile nations. You see, so far from his appointment being from man or through man, Paul is saying that his appointment to be an apostle has its source in the divine decree of God. Moreover, the means of his appointment came when in God's good pleasure, God revealed his son to Paul. This is the second time Paul used the apocalyptic language using the verb form, apocalypsi. The ESV says to reveal his son to me, but the Greek, trans, the Greek preposition, it's actually revealed his son in me. 
Paul says that it pleased God to reveal his son in me. I think this is important because it highlights two things. First, the transforming power of the revelation of Jesus Christ in Paul to convert him. But second, it communicates that God has revealed his son in Paul in such a way that he commissions Paul to be the conduit or ambassador through which Jesus Christ is revealed to the nations. You see, in the Damascus Road narrative, there's some debate that people have of was Paul converted or was Paul just commissioned? I think here Paul makes it clear that he was converted and commissioned because the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed in him and he would be the conduit through which Jesus would bring the gospel to the nations. So in the context and argument of this letter, Paul's statement here does two things. First, it establishes that Paul's apostleship is not from or through man, but is from God acting directly through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Second, it asserts Paul's gospel message to be the true and authentic gospel message, communicated to Paul not by man, but by apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The Son has been apocalyptically revealed in Paul. Again, here Paul was referring to that, his conversion and commissioning narrative on that Damascus road. This becomes even more clear as he goes on to say, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Arabia was a a large region. I mean, we have modern-day Saudi Arabia. But it's likely that he's referring more specifically to the the Nabetan kingdom. Damascus and its governor were under the Nabetan king, uh, Aretes, and this is where they secured the city, if you remember that narrative, when they locked down the city in Acts, and they're trying to get Paul, and Paul has to be lowered through a window in a basket in the night. That's the time that he's talking about. And you can read about that in Acts 9 and 2 Corinthians 11. People have speculated about what did Paul do when he was in Arabia? Whether Did he visit Mount Sinai? Did he preach the gospel in those regions? Or maybe he just took three years to reflect on this massive revelation and reflect on all of the scriptures. Yet Paul doesn't tell us. And I think uh, commentator De Silva says it well. He says, quote, His purpose here is not to arouse his readers' curiosity about what he did do in Arabia and Damascus, about which he says nothing explicit, but to establish what he did not do by remaining in those regions after his conversion, end quote. Regarding what he did not do, Paul is explicit. He did not consult with anyone, and he did not go up to Jerusalem and to those who were apostles before him. In this, Paul's point is clear. His apostleship is not from any man. His teaching is not from any man, not even the other apostles. He has received his apostleship, he has received his gospel message independently from them, and rather from direct revelation of Jesus Christ from God the Father. Paul goes on to explain that it was three years after his conversion and commissioning before he finally went up to Jerusalem. And even in this, he's very careful in his wording about why he went up there and what he did and did not uh, do. He came to visit Caiaphas. Remember, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. 
Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem not to submit his teaching to inspection and his ministry to the authority of Peter and the other apostles, but simply to visit and make acquaintance with Peter. He is clear that he did not see any of the other apostles except for James, Jesus' half-brother. There is debate, and we talked about this a little bit our last time, on whether or not Paul views James as an uppercase A apostle or a lowercase A apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the Lord Jesus Christ did appear to James, so it's possible that he received such a commission like that. But in any case, Paul's point here is that he did not consult with the apostles in Jerusalem to receive or correct his gospel message. He was simply making acquaintance. So important is this point that in verse 20, Paul swears an oath saying, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. You have to understand, to a Jewish man raised on Torah and a man who is united to Christ by faith and has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, swearing an oath to God is a very, very serious thing. But there are reasons for what our standards call making a lawful oath. There's perhaps no more lawful oath than one that upholds the truth of the gospel message of free grace. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Consider this apocalyptic grace. Paul, the persecutor of the church of God, he who at that time was in the very process of destroying the church by throwing men and women in prison and casting his vote for them to be executed, this man was stopped dead in his tracks and knocked to the ground by God's grace. Jesus Christ, who in his mercy reveals to us our sin and misery and who by his grace delivers us, makes saints out of sinners. This is apocalyptic grace. Grace which the law in itself could never communicate. But as Paul will say in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yet in God's mercy... This message of apocalyptic grace is not only for those like Paul who were the Jews who were under the law in a specific sense, but it's for the nations as well, over whom Paul has been appointed as a preacher and teacher and apostle to preach Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations. Through the reading and preaching of God's word and through the powerful working of God's Holy Spirit, the gospel message of apocalyptic grace is being revealed among the nations even to you this day. Believe in Christ and participate in the foretaste of what is to come. Rest in Christ and receive the peace which surpasses all understanding, even now. Meditate on this grace and marvel in it, responding with lives of gratitude, which brings us to our third and final point. We've looked at apocalyptic guilt. We've just considered apocalyptic grace. Now let's look at apocalyptic gratitude, verses 21 through 24. Paul now goes on to tell us of where he went after his short visit to Jerusalem, saying in verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Syria is the area up north above Jerusalem, along the Mediterranean Sea, where the top is Antioch. Cilicia is to the northwest of that, and that's where Tarshish is, Paul's hometown. Paul adds to this information, saying in verse 22, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of 
Judea that are in Christ. Notice earlier when he talked about the church, he talked about the church universal, the ecclesia of God. Now when he's talking about individual churches in a region, he says that the churches that are in Christ. I think it's just beautiful that at every mention of the church, how closely Paul associates it with God and with Christ. And that's just a point I wanted to note. Yet, he adds in verses 23 to 24. And I should say that when he says that he was unknown in person to those in Judea, he doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't see him when he stopped in. But what he means is there was not a significant trial of Paul's gospel. There wasn't an examination of it. There wasn't a significant event. He simply made acquaintance with Peter and with James. So he was not known yet because he had not a significant ministry in Jerusalem and Judea. Yet he adds in verses 23 through 24, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. While they did not know Paul by sight, yet they were hearing reports about his preaching in Syria and Cilicia. They were hearing of his preaching the faith, a shorthand for the the Christian faith and referring to the content of the gospel. Paul is preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. This statement parallels the one made earlier in verses 13, which we said was better translated, I persecuted the church of God excessively, and was destroying it. Here again, the translation of the ESV kind of downplays what Paul is saying. It's not that he once tried to destroy the faith and it didn't work, making it sound like it was a once-for-all thing that Paul did. It's better to translate something like, he who was persecuting us is now preaching the faith that he was formerly destroying. In saying this, Paul again emphasizes the apocalyptic revelation of his guilt, but also the apocalyptic grace which turned a persecutor of the faith into a preacher of the faith. The only appropriate response to such a change, such a radical transformation, which God brings about through the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, is gratitude, gospel gratitude. This literally says that they glorified God in Paul, meaning that they glorified God because of the manifest grace of God in Paul's transformation and in his proclamation. During this season in the life of our church, as you all know, we're blessed with an abundance of new members, and we had beautiful service earlier today. One of the things we have with this is members' interviews. As an intern, I'm blessed with being able to sit in on these interviews with the session and to hear many people's testimonies of God's grace in their lives and bringing them to himself. Something that is incumbent on us in these, and in which we do regularly and audibly in speaking to these interviewees, is praise God for the work that is done in your life. Praise him for how he took you from that life of sin and misery, and he has revealed to you apocalyptically the Lord Jesus Christ, and has transformed you, taking a sinner and making a saint. And this is a special privilege and obligation of the session. Yet our whole church body also partakes in this. As you hear these brothers and sisters in this congregation make vows, and you see the blessing and name of God being put upon their heads, 
proclaiming their faith in God and the free salvation found in Christ, we should all glorify God for His grace in the lives of these brothers and sisters in Christ. And oh yeah, remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. As those who are in Christ, who have had our sins revealed and the grace of Christ manifested to us, we are to respond in gratitude fitting to those who are united to Christ and partakers of the benefits of the new covenant and even of the age which is to come. We are participants in God's new creation enacted in Christ. Let us glorify God as manifest grace in all things, as our catechism says, whereby he maketh himself known. And that is gloriously so in the redemption of sinners. If you're here today and the revelation of Christ has caused you to see and feel the guilt of your sin, I beg you to lay hold of Christ who has apocalyptically revealed His grace through His Scripture. Receive Him and rest upon Him. This is the only Gospel, the only good news which brings true and full salvation and complete transformation. Let all of us receive Christ as He's freely presented to us today. We started today by talking about the meaning of apocalypse in different schools of theology and in the way that it's talked about in popular culture. By and large, the idea of apocalypse is reserved for a future catastrophe. As I said, there's some truth to this future-looking eschatological view of apocalypse. The apocalyptic literature of the prophets did look to a future time when God was going to bring judgment on his enemies and salvation and transformation to his people and even all of the cosmos. But that's not it. This is the wonder of the gospel and the marvel of the Christ event, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, pouring out his spirit. With his first coming, we have entered into an overlapping of the ages, as Paul talked about in chapter 1, referring to to the former evil age, which we're being rescued from. Because of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation and transformation of the new creation in the future has even come into the present by faith in Christ. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation This is why an exclusively futuristic understanding of apocalypse or of these apocalyptic passages is inadequate. The glory of God and of the new age has been definitively revealed in Christ and revealing to us our sin and guilt, but also his great mercy and grace and the tremendous gratitude which we owe to God for his grace to us and to others. This is the apocalypse of God. His revelation of Jesus Christ, wherein persecutors are made preachers and wherein sinners are made saints. Let us all give honor and glory to God the Father and Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not what our hands have done, but only what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for making the Apostle Paul an example to us that even the chief of sinners might be struck down and raised up in Christ and to be made 
new and to be made a proclaimer of the gospel to the nations. How thankful we are that you have proclaimed Christ to us, that you have apocalyptically revealed him to us, radically transforming us from our lives in sin and misery and transforming us and transferring us to the kingdom of your light and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.